This podcast is sponsored by Joseph and Partners. Joseph and Partners are specialists in all aspects of shipping law and are a trusted shipping legal firm approached by companies not just in Malaysia but internationally. Welcome to the podcast channel of the Malaysian Law Student Network or MLSN in short. Today, we look into the issue of citizenship discrimination in Malaysia. Organized by MLSN, this is Finding Equality in a Patriarchy, Citizenship Discrimination in Malaysia, featuring Miss Larissa Ann Lewis, Miss Suri Kempe, and Miss Adeline Adam Tio. Enjoy. Good evening, everyone, and to those who have just joined us, welcome to MLSN's Clubhouse event on citizenship discrimination. My name is Brandon Murray, and alongside my friend Iqmal Hazim, we will be your moderators for today's session. As made clear in the title of the event, we will be discussing the issue of citizenship discrimination in Malaysia, which is a relatively patriarchal society. This session today will be mainly divided into three parts. For the first part, we will be touching upon the factual background of the recent High Court citizenship case brought by Family Frontiers and six affected mothers. One mother is joined, uh, has joined us today. And secondly, we will talk about the alternative solutions to help the unlucky families who are affected by the citizenship discrimination in ways other than law reform. And for the last part, we will discuss the barriers that prevent our government from recognizing mothers and fathers as equal when it comes to their overseas-born children acquiring citizenship. I will now like to express my deepest gratitude on behalf of MLSN to all three of our fantastic speakers today. We have Miss Larissa Ann Lewis, Miss Suri Kempe, and Miss Adeline Adam Thieu. Thank you so much for being here today. And before we formally commence this discussion, allow me to briefly introduce our speakers. Firstly, we have Miss Larissa Ann Lewis, who is a human rights lawyer that heads the pro bono unit alongside the managing partner of Azri Lee Suising and Co. She has represented the UNHCR, Human Rights Commission of Malaysia, Bar Council, and many NGOs on various human rights issues. She has advised and represented clients seeking a declaration of citizenship by operation of law in various courts. As for our second speaker, we have Ms. Suri Kempe, who is the president of Family Frontiers, which happens to be the primary organization advocating for the citizenship discrimination and its effects in Malaysia. Suri is a primary litigant in the infamous High Court case, where it was held that mothers are now allowed to confer citizenship on their overseas-born children the same way a father is able to do so, by reading father in the federal constitution to include mothers. Additionally, she has worked with the UNDP and Malaysia's Ministry of Women, Family and Community Development, and in various leadership roles with civil society organizations, including Family Frontiers, the Asia-Pacific Research and Resource Center, or Arrow, and Queer Lapis. As for our third speaker, we have Ms. Adeline Adam Tio, who is a mother that was directly affected by Malaysia's discriminatory citizenship laws. Adeline is a cybersecurity lead at a global financial institution, and along with Suri, she is one of the plaintiffs in the High Court case just mentioned. All right, so now that we've sufficiently butted up our speakers, we will start the discussion. And to get the ball rolling, I will now pass the floor to Iqmal. Yeah, hi everyone. I think to start off this session, perhaps we should gain a better understanding of the factual background to the recent High Court case. So maybe Ms. Suri and Ms. Adlin, being parties to the case, 
you guys could provide us with some insight on how the case was initiated, what was the standing, and who the other parties to the case were. Ms. Uri? Right. Thank you, Iqmal. Thank you, Brandon. Um, I think I can start off with explaining, you know, the factual background of the case, and then I'll pass it on to Adeline to talk about her experience specifically um, and, and just provide us with an example, you know, of the, of the real lives that are behind this, um, this case and how they are affected. Because I think too often um, within the legal fraternity, you know, we tend to get caught up with um, the technical arguments. And so I think it's really important to hear um, from affected parties themselves and, and um, Adeline as an affected mother. So I'll start. Um, essentially, just to give you a little bit of a background, in 2010, uh, this case, so so the issue has been a long-standing issue, okay? Um, our citizenship laws have been discriminatory since um, since it, since their inception, right, of Malaysia. And so in 2010, uh, the government recognized that this was a discriminatory, this issue discriminated against women. It recognized that the... Um, that, the, that Malaysian women were deeply affected by this. And so in 2010, uh, then Home Affairs Minister, Datuk Sri Shamuddin Hussein, actually announced that the government would um, proceed with an administrative amendment to help facilitate the process of, um, of facilitating the applications for citizenship under Article 15.2. I just realized that I should take a step back and, and note that perhaps not everyone is familiar with the registration process or the citizenship process. So for men, um, Malaysian men, any child that they have who is born, whether in Malaysia or abroad, regardless of who their spouse is, whether the spouse is Malaysian or non-Malaysian, um, their child is entitled to citizen, Malaysian citizenship by operation of law. For Malaysian women, that is not the case. Malaysian women have to, um, if they are married to a Malaysian citizen, then the child is entitled to Malaysian citizenship regardless of where they are born. But if Malaysian women are married to foreigners, then um, the child is entitled to Malaysian citizenship if the child is born in Malaysia. But if the child is born outside of Malaysia, which happens in a lot of cases and more frequently than we would assume, uh, then the child is not entitled to Malaysian citizenship by operation of law, but is assumed to follow the father's citizenship. So the child has to apply, so the mother then has to apply for citizenship, Malaysian citizenship, by under Article 15.2, which is citizenship by registration. And this, um, this process itself is fraught with um, many bureaucratic hurdles. It takes a ridiculously long time. Um, and it is arbitrary in terms of decision-making. Just to give you a sense of how arbitrary it is, um, the success rate of obtaining citizenship under Article 15.2 is only 1.64%. Yeah? So it's not high at all. Um, now, despite this administrative amendment uh, and the government's promise to fix and expedite the process, this didn't happen. Because, because the chances of success 
uh, remain at 1.64%. Now, under Pakatan Harapan government, when the Pakatan Harapan government was in power, uh, there was some uh, attempt at moving the issue forward. Uh, but when the government fell, when the Pakatan Harapan government fell, we lost key champions in government who were advocating on the issue. And parliament was suspended and we couldn't engage the parliamentary machinery. And on top of that, COVID had, um, had affected the country. And therefore, we were then, um, there were a lot of families that were affected. That were, there was forced separation. Um, some some wives and some children hadn't been able to connect with the fathers who were abroad for years. Um, and so there was a lot of fracturing that happened within families. And as the pandemic exacerbated its impact on families, that led us to decide, okay, well, since we can't rely on the government to push through um, legislative reform, we are going to try and seek justice in the courts. And we filed the case. We brought together, Family Frontiers brought together six Malaysian mothers. Um, we assessed the risks of filing a case and we strategized on that and we decided to file. Now, in the application, we asked the court to declare that the relevant articles on citizenship, namely Article 14 and the second schedule, Sections 1B and 1C, um, should be read harmoniously um, with Article 8.2, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of gender, and Article 8, which guarantees equality before the law. Now, we filed the case in the KL High Court in December 2020, um, and, and then the government, of course, tried to uh, file to strike out our case, arguing that it was frivolous, troublesome, and vexatious. I kid you not, that is what it said in their appeal to strike out the case. The High Court judge dismissed the strikeout application. The government appealed again uh, at the appeals court, and it was unanimously struck, uh, struck down. And so the case proceeded at the High Court. And of course, um, you're all aware, on the 9th of September, the High Court judge um, then decided in our favor, ruling that, um, that, in, that the federal constitution, relevant provisions within the federal constitution should not be read literally, but uh, as a whole, and um, that in this case, um, the word father should include the word mother, uh, and mothers were allowed uh, to then confer citizenship to their children born abroad. Adeline, I'll pass it to you at this point to share your own experience with regards to this issue. Uh, thanks, Suri. Um, yes, so I am Adeline Adam Thieu. I'm a cybersecurity specialist. I'm currently based in KL, and I have one boy, and he is nine years old, and he was born in Beijing. So I met my spouse uh, when I was living in Beijing. I used to run my own business there, yeah? And um, I remember when I was pregnant. So my journey actually started before my child was even born. Um, when I was pregnant, um, I inquired at the Hong Kong consulate as well as the Malaysian embassy in Beijing on what are the procedures required to register my child, right, the birth of my child. Because as uh, many of you know, when, you know, when we go overseas, um, you know, we register um, our presence uh, in, in the country, in the city uh, with the consulate, right, or with the embassy. So I thought, okay, you know, ask first, find out what needs to be done because I'm going to have a baby soon. And they told me 
boleh puan, tak ada masalah. Please come, just register your child, you know, you, or apply. Um, you know, everything will be sorted. So not a big deal. So based on that, um, you know, um, feedback, I decided to stay on in Beijing and have my child because, um, you know, I didn't see any obstacles or there was no concern, right? So um, um, I applied uh, for my baby's um, citizenship before he turned one. Uh, three years later, I got a rejection letter. Uh, the rejection letter did not indicate why my application failed. Uh, it just said that kalau Puan masih berminat, Puan boleh uh, mengemukakan permohonan lagi. Right? So, I was, it was just so incredulous because I said, of course saya berminat. You know, of course. Why wouldn't I? I went through, um, you know, I, I want my child to be Malaysian. And why are you rejecting his, this application? Um, so there was no basis uh, that was given for why the uh, rejection was um, uh, given to me. And so the following year, I reapplied again, right? And I felt really, uh, really silly because there I was uh, submitting the exact same documents, filling up the exact same forms, uh, knowing that, wow, you know, I mean, I'm submit, submitting everything, you know, as per what, what is required, right, in the checklist. So... I don't know what I'm doing this for because, you know, if it's um, going to be like the first case, then what's going to come out of this, right? So I did it anyway. Um, it's been five years now, right? So you can say that my journey has lasted 10 years, right? So this, um, you know, going back and forth. And what really shocked me um, throughout this journey was uh, when I eventually found out that this application that I made would not have applied to my brother. So as luck would have it, I also have a brother who also married a non-Malaysian, right? So his wife is American. Now, if my brother had a child in the US, his kid would automatically be Malaysian, uh, but not mine. So it was just very, um, very baffling, right? So that's uh, a little bit about, you know, how I went about with the application process. So what does this really mean, right, uh, on day to day? You know, why, why did I have to come uh, all this way, you know, and be a plaintiff in this case? Uh, it's because of the many, many, many challenges that comes with this, um, with this um, issue. First of all, when my child was born, he was born uh, in a third country. So he was not born in my country. Uh, he was not born in his father's country, uh, but he was born in China, right? So he, at that point in time, did not qualify for any citizenship by operation of law. My child was stateless, right? So it, it, was, it was a very stressful time because here you are as a young couple trying to raise a kid and you have to deal with the fact that your child has no papers, right? And so it, citizenship is so important because fundamentally, it's the right to have rights. If you don't have the citizenship of any country, it's, it's as if you don't exist, right? So um, luckily for us, uh, we uh, filed a humanitarian appeal uh, to Hong Kong, which is the country of my husband's, and we managed to get uh, a passport for my son. So uh, since then, you know, uh, we came back to Malaysia about five years ago and it's been really tough. I, um, it's really tough to raise a kid in Malaysia who's not Malaysian. 
um, first of all, is like you think, oh, you know, when the kid turns six or seven, he can go to primary school. But for me, even that was a was a big battle because I couldn't even register uh, him in school. Like I went to the government schools near my house and they say, oh, Puan, you have to wait for all the Malaysian kids to get in first. And then only if there is a spot, then we can let you in. And once there is a spot, then you need to go apply at the Ministry of Education. Then you need to go to immigration and then we can get your, your child in. So this, what this meant was that my kid, by the time he even you know, gets into class, other kids would have already started school for already two months, right? So this process of getting a spot, going through the administrative uh, bureaucracies would occur every year. So if my child loses two months of every year in his academic year, uh, from the time he, he starts standard one until he finishes form five, I have counted, yeah, he would have lost 2.2 years of schooling, gone, just like that, just because he's a foreign kid. And um, it's, you know, I can tell you much more about the difficulties. I'll stop right here. But um, this is this is how it affects us, you know. I mean, we can't even send the, our kids to school. So um, the, the, the it, it's a really difficult situation. Um, thanks, uh, Suri. Brandon, Iqmal, back to you. Um, thank you so much, Ms. Suri and Ms. Adeline, for giving your overview of the High Court case, as well as sharing your experience under Malaysia's discriminatory citizenship law. It's honestly so saddening to hear the difficulties of trying to confer citizenship on your son when I feel like it should have been a given right. But I hope that the High Court ruling continues to stand upon appeal so that future mothers can have an ease of mind when registering their children's citizenship. I'll pass the floor to Brandon to ask the following question. All right, so the next question will be directed to Miss Larissa. So Miss Larissa, as is clear, the prime legal reform to remedy the mothers who give birth to their children outside of Malaysia is to amend the unequal citizenship law itself, allowing mothers to enjoy the same privilege as fathers in which they would be able to confer citizenship on their child. What are some other viable solutions that you can think of to help these unlucky families? Hi, thanks Brandon and Iqmal, and thank you so much uh, Suri and Adeline for consistently sharing your stories uh, to the public and bringing such great awareness to these issues and even taking that step to challenge um, this article in court. So basically, yes, as we know, the only way forward, which is probably the hardest way forward, is to amend the constitution because, yes, there is acceptance that there that these articles are discriminatory, uh, specifically on uh, this issue and also on the illegitimacy issue that was heard in May this year on uh, statelessness as well. So in terms of what other ways aside from amending the constitution is actually uh, probably, I would say, using the different articles available uh for the current uh, uh, issue. So, for example, I know Suri did mention about Article 15.2, uh, and that will take a long time as well, but that would probably be the second best way when you go to court with. So, getting a rejection, if there is a rejection on Article 15 or 15A, then you bring the case to court, 
under a judicial review saying that the conditions were met, so why was there a rejection? Because as we can see now, the courts are fighting it at Article 14.1, which is operation of law, which is an automatic right. But in the alternative would be under 15.2 and 15.A. And of course, 15.A would be anyone who's less than 21 years old, where the federal government may, in special circumstances, as it thinks fit to confer citizenship. So hopefully, this discretionary power of the federal government will be exercised in a non-discriminatory way. And, you know, under 15A, as lawyers, when we bring actions to court under 15A, we actually went through the hands up to guide or uh, persuade the court on what it actually meant to be uh, to form part of special circumstances, what the, the parliament or the uh, drafters of the constitution had in their mind or intention when they said special circumstances. So there were four scenarios when we went through the hands up and the arguments of Article 15A. Now, 15A, again, it's a new article that was introduced uh, via the Constitution Amendment Act in 1962. So basically, it was an additional thing that was added into our constitution. And when we read through the Hansard and the arguments, when it came to the word special circumstances, the four scenarios was a child has no parents, the child has an attachment to the country, or where the child is involved in cases of hardship. And of course, the most compelling reason would be in the best interest of the child. And of course, like as Adeline has mentioned as well, you know, the education route for a person who is stateless or a person who's in between uh, this process, having a child with no education, of course, cannot be in the best interest of the child. Now, with that said as well, I understand and I'm sure Suri and Adeline can agree with me, 15.2 and 15a is again an application process in JPN. You have to go through uh, the application process of submitting supporting documents, uh, pay 10 ringgit for the registration and wait months, years. You know, we have clients that have waited five, five over years for a, a result where most of the time it's normally rejected or uh, in their words specifically would be tidak berjaya or so no reasons are given. Then it's when we will actually bring the case to court, either via a judicial review or an originating summons. Now taking it one step back again, so obviously the first way is to amend the constitution, the second way is to use the other articles that are available, and the third way that I can think of is to push for internal policies with within JPN as well. Uh, because what we have seen when the clients come to us, we can have a family of like four siblings, two are Malaysians, two are not, uh, just by the fact that they registered or went through the process at different JPNs. So there are inconsistency in SOPs, in uh, training of the officers there on uh, on on the conditions that must be looked for or the supporting documents that must be supported with the application through this. So uh, internal policy with SOP, clear SOPs on how to navigate around this situation. I think again, Suri and Adeline can agree with me or so. In different countries, uh, the Malaysian and uh, uh, consulates at the different countries, also they're not very familiar like 
I mean, Adeline mentioned just now, you know, they were so confident that it could be done. But when push comes to shove, when it, when the scenario already happened, and then they give a, a different story that now Adeline is in a position where she doesn't know what to do because she received an advice earlier saying that it's possible and now it's not possible. So consistency in the SOP would be the most obvious and visible uh, option as of now that I can think of because that is what we have been pushing as well uh, with the lawyers and the current NGOs who are working on this issue and we have seen some form of improvement there uh, not I wouldn't say that we have seen the written SOPs or whatnot but we have seen it reflected in the cases that uh, are getting accepted uh, under 15A or whatnot but yeah, that would be the fastest and easiest solution is the internal uh, policies and SOPs. I'll pass it back to you, Brendan. All right. Thank you, Larissa. I think it's definitely interesting to see the contrast between both the legal and like the more humanizing aspects of this issue. And it's important as, to us, especially as law students, you know, to take into account both aspects for us to gauge our overall understanding of the issue. So now I'll pass the floor back to Igmal to ask the last question. But before that, a reminder that once the speakers are done answering this final question, we will have our open floor Q&A session so you can start to get your questions ready. Back to you, Iqmal. Hi, everyone. So for our final question, we kind of also wanted to know, like, what are some of the barriers which are preventing our government from recognizing mothers and fathers as equal when it comes to conferring citizenship on a child born overseas? So maybe, Miss Suri, you could start and all the other speakers can add on afterwards? Sure, absolutely. But before I start, I wanted to kind of comment uh, just a reaction to Larissa's response. So one of the things that one, you know, with regards to the SOPs, with the administrative amendment, we know that this is a long drawn out process. And clearly the trickle down from, from top level to actual on the ground implementation by various embassies, ministries, etc. is going to be is super slow. Okay, it's completely unrealistic. We've given it a shot in 2010. Ten years have passed and the bureaucratic procedures have not changed. In fact, they've become worse. And so while I understand it is the most feasible, it is also the most, in, at least based on experience, the most unrealistic in terms of, um, in terms of seeing it actually materialize into something that will translate into sustained and transformative change. What, we've ho what we hope to do with, with by filing this application in court was that we wanted to ask, you know, the other, and the other thing is, is to avoid going in on a case-by-case -case basis because that is such a huge problem. There's so many people affected and for each, not every single person can afford legal counsel. And so what we attempted to do in this case, when we asked for a declaration for a harmonious reading of the various articles in the federal constitution was to actually affect, it was an attempt to affect the interpretation and application of the federal constitution so that it would have a sweeping um, and transformative effect, right? If, and, and, and some people would say, well, it's the high court, you know, it'll be challenged, whatnot. My argument would be, you know, the government and the government has a standing policy to challenge any case it loses at the high court level. My argument would be, it's done it before. In the Undi 18, Malaysia Undi 18 case, it actually withdrew its appeal to, to challenge the High Court decision. And it went with that, 
right? So there's nothing stopping the government from actually deciding to go ahead and implement the High Court decision while simultaneously looking, like, moving towards amending, um, doing, providing permanent relief and, 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 and um, potentially stopping um, any challenges to that High Court decision by amending the federal constitution, right, for the long run. With regards to your question, Iqmal, um, on barriers, what is preventing the government from recognizing mothers and fathers as equal? I would say there are two levels on which you can argue this, but I'm going to answer. One is the actual case itself, the government saying why it's appealing, but I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on uh, the issue of dual citizenship and the threat of national security. Now, dual citizenship is the argument that the government is always giving uh, when this question is raised in Parliament. As I said, it's not a long-standing, it's a long-standing issue, and therefore this case, this question will be asked in Parliament every two years. Confirm, you will see this question raised, and every single time, the answer from the Ministry of Home Affairs will be that, oh, women cannot be given the right to confer, the equal right to confer citizenship to their children born abroad because Malaysia doesn't allow dual citizenship, and this is, an, and, and this is a national security threat. I want to highlight here that there are so many different ways in which children of um, Malaysia, in which children can be granted or will receive dual citizenship. One is if a child is born abroad to a Malaysian man married to a foreign spouse, and that country from where the spouse is from has given women the right to grant citizenship to their children, right? The second scenario is where children born in Malaysia to either parents, to, where both parents are Malaysian, um, but are born abroad in a country which grants citizenship on the principle of Jusoli, will also be given citizenship, right? And children born in Malaysia to either parent who is Malaysian married to a foreign spouse are also open to receiving dual citizenship. So there are many ways. In this case, the threat of dual citizenship is clearly not a criteria that is applied to Malaysian men. And it, therefore, should not be used as an excuse to perpetuate discrimination against women and to deny them the right to equal citizenship. Now, there's also this argument of, like, oh, once we give women the right to confer citizenship, it'll open up the floodgates, right? It's also expressed as a concern when discussing this matter. Now, we presume that this concern refers to the non-citizen spouse of the Malaysian woman. However, in reality... A non-citizen spouse of a Malaysian woman does not have access to apply to Malaysian citizenship. Instead, they have to rely on citizenship by natural, naturalization, which any foreigner can do. Now, Malaysian identity of the child does not add any effect to the non-citizen parent's access to Malaysian citizenship. So, those are some of the so, so those are some of the official. Uh, officially logged responses that the Malaysian government has given um, when it comes to uh, giving Malaysian women equal rights to conferring citizenship. Thanks, Suri, for that. Um, I'll give uh, my opinion. Um, so from a, you know, as an affected mother, right, I see that um, public sentiment truly drives uh, government action. Right, and the sentiment that we've seen uh, on the ground, um, you know, it's it goes either way, right? And there are other people who are very supportive of our cause, and those who aren't. And you know, I listen to the voices of people who are, you know, are not with us, 
and I can see uh, it being directed uh, two ways, right? One to the mothers and one to the kids. Now, to the mothers, um, what is often uh, brought up is uh, really the questioning of our loyalty to the country, right? It almost seems like when, you know, when a Malaysian woman marries a foreigner, she is kind of, uh, I don't know, seen to be as uh, betraying her country or forgetting her Malaysian roots. Uh, so this has perpetuated a lot of confusion, um, a lot of feelings of, you know, you know nationalism, uh, patriarchy, right, that comes up. Um, so I just wanted to make a point that, you know, um, no matter who we marry, right, we are first and foremost always Malaysian. We never lose our roots, no matter you know where we go to study or where we go to work, where our careers take us. You know, we we are always Malaysian first, right? Um, second, um, uh, one of the things that are directed to our kids, right? I, I notice um, uh, when the public comments on this is that they say, "Oh, the kids, you know, you you need to give them, um, you know, tests." Uh, like a Bahasa or Malaysia test, so you know they, they probably don't know the Rukun Negara and whatnot. So I want to ask um, these naysayers, why do you impose such uh, you know requirements to the children of Malaysian mothers but not Malaysian fathers? Why this double standard, right? But if you want to talk about identities of the children, uh, I'm happy to say that my son. It's very Malaysian. You know, he only knows one uh, national anthem, and that is Megaraku. Uh, he knows, you know, uh, how to draw uh, the Malaysian flag very well. Um, he can even sing, you know, very traditional Malay songs like Balik Kampung uh, by Sudirman. So, if you want to talk about uh, the identity, identities of the children, they are just as Malaysian as any Malaysian kid you see out there. So I feel that it's uh, very unfair and um, that these um, criticisms are uh, directed to mothers uh, but um, has no basis, right? It's just a way of confusing um, the public, of riling up uh, sentiments uh, that are perhaps, you know, um, uh, uh, can 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 divide um, the population, so it's um, very uncalled for. So you know, I hope that you know as we bring this case more and more, that we actually do bring more clarity as well uh, to the public uh, on the true matter. Uh, thanks for that uh, time, Larissa. Over to you. I totally agree with what Suri and Adin just said. I think the biggest issue that uh, that I we can see as lawyers and what has been reported would be the national security. You know, even uh, if if we can gather this issue together with a statelessness issue, that is uh, their thought process that it will open the floodgates. Uh, why why should they be able to get the citizenship and the whole misconception on? Uh, on this issue has contributed to what it is today. I don't think I have anything else to add. I think Suri and Adlin uh, has wonderfully put it together. Um, thanks, Miss Larissa, Adlin, and Suri for that insight. 
I think you guys were totally right to say that the criticisms towards Malaysian women totally have no basis because number one, why why are these questions only applied to Malaysian women? And number two, even the questions of disloyalty or like kids not knowing the national anthem doesn't really have any basis since they still they still are educated with Malaysian values, right? So it to me it really boggles my mind how how these questions even come to surface when it comes to not allowing uh, Malaysian women to confer citizenship to their children. And it's unfortunate to see that Malaysia still has a long way to go from fully realizing equal treatment when it comes to our citizenship laws. Now, with that final question, I'll pass the floor back to Brandon to start off our Q&A session. Brandon? All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for the insights that you've given thus far. But So now we're going to move into our open Q&A session. So I will open the floor to the audience to ask any questions to the speakers regarding the topic at hand. But before that, a word of caution. Please ask your questions respectfully. Any form of attacks or discriminatory behavior towards our speakers will not be tolerated, and it will result in us removing you from the podium and reporting your account. So for anyone from the audience who is interested to ask a question to any one of our speakers or to all our speakers, please use the hand-raising feature and we will add you to the podium. You can raise your hands now. Um, okay, thank you so much. I think it has been a very insightful session so far. Um, I just want questions um, which I'd like to direct to Ms. Suri. I refer to a statement made by Home Minister Datu Sri Hamza Zainuddin on the 23rd of September in the Parliament, which he, on behalf of government, he suggested that the government would be proposing an amendment to the Constitution to clearly state that children born overseas to Malaysian mother with foreign spouses would be entitled to citizenship as of right. I think we can all welcome this decision to amend the constitution as it will help remove any ambiguity, particularly on the um, aspect of Article 14b. But there is just one question which I'd like to ask Miss um, Suri's view. As um, I'm particularly annoyed to learn that the government actually still refuses to withdraw its appeal at the Court of Appeal in the case of Surani, um, which I think it's quite unreasonable given that this decision delivered in Suriani is actually the very essence, the very point of law which the, amend the amendment seeks to enforce. And so there's no reason for the government to still continue this appeal. So does, do you think that the government, the, the statement made by Home Minister still lack the political view to drive changes, particularly in constitutional amendment, or just put it simply, was the statement a classic example of political stonewalling? Yep. Thank you so much for that question. I'm sure that's like a question that's been like on people's minds as well. Um, so just, uh, I guess, to kind of um, put everything out on the table, the government said that it's filing. Um, so on the one hand, I think it could potentially be um, a way to delay things, right? Like... Yes, we need we need to we have we're, we're announcing the intention, um, but we need to get the Council of Rulers approval, and um, we don't. Uh, we've directed the Attorney General to seek uh, an audience, but we've not heard of a timeline or anything like that. But um, they will. One of the other arguments they've also put forth in saying why they filed um, for the appeal is because um, they said, quote unquote, they needed time to amend the federal constitution, which I think is a little bit nonsensical. But they also said 
um, on top of that, that there was another case at, at the high court which, uh, for which there was an, a contradicting judgment issued in the case of Mahisha Suhaila versus uh, Jabatan Pandaftar Nagara, um, which had decided in the government's favor. However, um, I'm not sure how many are familiar. Um, so in this case, it, it was a one-on-one -on -one case. They um, basically decided um, it was, so it was a single focus case, right? It wasn't like in our case, public interest litigation. It focused, it used, it basically had the six mothers to show um, what their experiences were, but the judgment essentially then um, applied um, our, or what we requested for was a holistic judgment, right? Um, basically, how to read, how to, that the federal court, or that the high court, sorry, um, interpret and apply a new meaning to the federal constitution, right? A new reading to it. Um, but in the case of Maisha Suhaila, um, I would argue that um, the argument that the government put forth saying um, this was a contradictory uh, judgment doesn't hold water. One, because the Mahisha grounds of judgment do not deal with resolving the seemingly contradictory provisions in the constitution, namely Article 8.2, which came by in 2000 with a 2001 amendment to the federal constitution, and the second schedule, Part 2, which was enacted in 1957, right? The Mahisha judgment also merely deals with the interpretation of the provision in the second schedule by reference to the 11th schedule, meaning words importing the masculine gender includes females, right? And the second schedule, part three, section 17, which is the interpretative section, where any reference to father or parent in respect to an illegitimate child, or I don't like to use the word illegitimate child, or a child born out of wedlock, is a reference to the mother of the child. But we argued, in our case, we did argue uh, before the High Court judge that this provision, um, which was adjudicated by the Federal Court in the CTEB case, was consonant, actually, with Article 8.2, as it recognized the mother as having the right over the child and was conferred the nationality of the mother, right? Um, and then the third, argue, the third point is really that um, the High Court judge... Um, Yang Arif Akhtar, uh, his decision actually sought to resolve the two provisions by applying a harmonious and purposive approach in the reading of the different provisions of the federal constitution, right? So, so based on that, I mean, essentially they're saying, they're saying, oh, there's this conflicting judgment out there, but I don't buy it for the reasons that I just, um, that I just listed. Um, and is it is it an is it an issue of uh, lacking in political will? To a certain extent, yes, because we still haven't received any confirmation um, on on how they are progressing with with going about getting consent from the conference of rulers, right? So yes, that's a long answer to your <laughs> to your question. Thanks. Thank you, Missouri. Lovely. Thank you. Thanks, Jiang, for that question. I think, Archie, you can go ahead and ask your question. Oh, uh, hi. Hi, Imal. Yeah. Hi, Suri. Hi. Hi to everyone. Yeah, I'm Archie. Uh, I just, I have a question. I think maybe Larissa or Suri can answer. So, you know, regards to the, Miss Larissa raised the constitutional amendment, I have doubts whether it will, it actually made it because According to Article 159 of the Federal Constitution, the provisions of the Part 3 of the Federal Constitution, which entails all the provisions regarding citizenship, must go through the consent of the Conference of Rulers. So let's say if the Parliament passes it, 
and but however, let's just say, uh, the conference worker did not actually got through it. So what would be the what would be the alternative option? Thank you. Yeah. So exactly like what we said previously, constitutional amendments will take a very very long time. There is a process to do it and. Together, the members of parliament who agree to uh, group on this issue and argue it in parliament and persuade the majority of them to actually uh, impose this uh, amendment. Do, do we have that? You know, we have to ask these kind of questions. Do we have the majority of them uh, wanting to make this amendment amongst all of the other issues that our country is facing right now, you know? Who is there? Who's pushing forward uh, these issues? Like what Suri said, you know, uh, this issue has been long gone, long coming. You know, even we as lawyers, we have drafted a citizenship act, gave it to the proper people to to uh, certain parliamentarians to argue it and to say that we have this. Let's try this. Uh, take it up to make the and to have an act specifically on citizenship, like what some countries have. But still, there was no movement to it. So the alternative to that, again, is also going to court. And that would be, again, another long process. And again, it will be a case-by-case basis. So to be honest, uh, as of now, as we can see, even if we have a precedent in court, and let's say the court uh, agrees uh, in the positive to everything that we have asked for, the implementation on that, to the constitution and to all the other cases is also going to take time. So with uh, mentioning just now uh, the policy and the internal SOPs, even that again will take time. But personally, because uh, like uh, what Suri has said and Adeline has said on the SOP procedure in relation to these specific articles, that there has not been much movement. And I know uh, also NGOs have drafted and helped the process of uh, drafting the SOPs for them to make it easier uh, for all JPNs to have that consistent SOPs. Uh, still not much movement, but on the flip side, on the uh, uh, the issue of like the adoption and the citizenship issue, we have, I mean, to just shed a little light, there was some positivity there in the SOP because they started, uh, we started seeing cases where it's on adoption cases then they were allowed if they apply under 15a it there was a positive uh, outcome slowly coming about and that was due to an internal sop if i'm if i'm not mistaken so yes it's going to take time yes even the alternative uh, options is going to take a long time but i guess we need to rally up the right members to push this forward among all the other agendas but then the question comes again is, do we have those people who are pushing this for as a, prim- uh, a, a priority at this moment in our country? Suri, I'll pass it to you. Thank you. Thanks, Larissa. And ju- yeah, just to add to that. So one is, I think the case, if our case uh, in Suriani Kemper and the, and the six other applicants, the six mothers, I think if it goes to court, whether we win or lose in the appeals court, one of the one of the i guess benefits of that is that it will maintain media attention and public attention on the case and the issue which means that it's a driver for continuous public conversation on the issue and 
I have to say I'm quite, uh, for the first time in a very long, long time, I've noticed that we have cross-partisan support from ministers from different political parties um, saying that they would agree to vote in favour of um, uh, an amendment to the federal constitution. So that's something we're like, um, you know, using as a sign of hope uh, because I don't want to... Um, I don't want to diminish, like, you know, because hope is what drives us, right? And and if we don't have hope, then we might as well give up. So in this case, I think, I really think that one is, yes, I think the uh, c consent from the Council of Rulers is a step. But to be honest, um, based on, based on, like, feedback that I've been receiving, it seems that the Council of Rulers is ready to okay this, Um based on what I've heard, and this is just very loosely, but, um, so don't quote me on that, but, but, you know, it, it's still, it's still something that fuels hope. And if it does go to, um, parliament, I think if there is, if there is enough push, public pressure, you know, uh, people talking about the issue, then I think, you know, there is, um, I think we've already seen how it's affected, um, members of parliament on both sides of the aisle. Um, Push comes to shove, I mean, the ultimate, ultimate, like the other thing is also, um, I think a plan C in that, in that sense is that, um, you know, government is going to table uh, an amendment to the federal constitution uh, based on whatever news coverage that we've read on MA63, on several other issues. Um, and another strategy could be to put in a motion to amend the bill, right? Um, and add in provisions that will address uh, this issue, and if it then goes to the committee, um, the special committee, uh, when they are debating, you know, when they are debating the uh, after the second reading in Parliament, then that's another yet another avenue that we can try. So I mean, there are multiple roads to equality in citizenship, you know, and I think using all of these tools that we have on at our fingertips effectively will eventually and hopefully result in um, improving the status of women and their capacity or their ability to confer citizenship to their children. So, I mean, the other thing we're hoping to do right now as well is we're trying to seek an audience with the Deputy Agong as well, although um, it's a bit hard to get, get access. But that is one of the things that we're trying, you know. So multiple, multiple efforts. And I think, you know, like Larissa says, pushing... Um, keeping the conversation out there, finding champions to talk about the issue um, and advocating for the issue um, is, is, is one of those strategies that is key to keep pressure on, um, on, on, on our decision makers. But I also want to say that push comes to shove. If none of this happens, we can also turn this into an election issue because, you know, at the end of the day, we will not vote for people who don't want equality for half the citizens in our country. And so, you know, women, like, um, I know the act, like, uh, the NGOs are ready to mobilize on this. And and really, I think the time has come for change. It's 2021. It is ridiculous that, a hundred, like, after 171 countries in the world have given women the right to confer citizenship to their children, Malaysia remains one of the 24 that hasn't, right? It is time for us to move into the 21st century. Absolutely. Thanks, Suri. Thanks, Sarisa, for the 
for the answer. It closed my doubt. And I think I have uh, one, actually just one more question. So I just thought, let's say if the amendment took place, how would you like to be a doctrine because of the, you know, article 14? Because it is a mixture of Jews soli and Jews sanguinis, right of the right of blood and right of soil. So if the amendment took place, what would you like to be con reconstituted? Constitution, something like that. Yeah. So that means, okay, I have studied the uh, constitution. So Article 14 is basically is a mixture of Jews soli and Jews sanguini. So it's like right to the soil, birth in the soil and right to the, to, with the blood, something. Yeah. So let's say yeah. if a amendment took place, would you want, how would you want to approach that? You want to be Jews sanguinis or Jews soli? I see. Okay. So I guess the proper way, uh, if it's worth, if it was me, section 1D, because that is currently the issue, uh, the word father should be parent, any parent. It doesn't have to be father or uh, it can be a father, it can be a mother. Uh, so there is an option there. It doesn't have to be the father. I think that's the that's basically the main issue because section 1B, section 1C of uh, article 141B, when you go to the part 2 of the second schedule, uh, mentions the word father. So it shouldn't be father, it should be parent. That is what I would think the amendment should be. Unless, uh, Suri, you have anything to add or Adlin? No, I mean, I don't think it, like, I think it can still re remain a mixture of both Jusoli and, and Jusanguinis. But at the end of the day, we want women, we want women to be able to confer citizenship, right? I mean, at the and also, I mean, and this is what Larissa was speaking to as well, is that, um, is that when it comes to citizenship, women being unable to confer citizenship to their children born abroad when they're married to a foreign spouse is just one of the citizenship problems, right? Like there's also the issue of spouses. There's also the issue of uh, like uh, children who are adopted. All of these are also problematic um, problematic provisions within um, within the within the constitution when it comes to citizenship. But in this particular case, in the case of Suryani Kemper, um, we are look, focusing specifically on the issue of um, women being able to confer citizenship um, to their children who are born abroad, right? Yep, correct. And, and Archie, just to add to that, we have the Court of Appeal decision uh, to actually state when it comes to citizenship issues, you have to prove you solely and you sanguinis, both must be present. So I guess that's also the issues when you set precedence in court, uh, unless there is the change in the constitution, that is what has to be followed. Both must be present. As of now, that is the precedent. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Larissa. Thanks, Siri. I actually have a question for Miss Adlin. And uh, this is because you mentioned previously that you have a little boy that is, you know, negatively affected in this circumstance in school and in cultural aspects. So maybe know sort of like what other aspects he is affected by, possibly in terms of the access to healthcare that many of us have. Right. Um, so quite, quite a few, right? So... Um... Like you rightly mentioned, Brandon, the access to healthcare, right? So you know how in Malaysia we have a great um, vaccination program for little children, you know, from the time they're babies up to the, you know, uh, their teens, right? Uh, mandatory um, uh, vaccination, so not, not necessarily COVID-related. Um, and 
I remember when he was about six, seven years old, I got a letter from the school saying, okay, you know, there's this mandatory vaccination, you know, uh, schedule, please go to the clinic kesihatan, right? And the school is organizing a, a field trip. Uh, all the little kids are going to get on a bus and go to the clinic kesihatan and going to get their vaccination. And what shocked me was when I saw that letter and the cost that was associated with getting that vaccine. Um, so, you know, for the Malaysian kid, it was this much. But for my child, because he was not a citizen, it wasn't just two or three times the cost. It was 120 times the cost of what it should really be. So, I mean, you know, access to healthcare is so basic, right? And when you put barriers such as these, um, think about, you know, I mean, luckily for us, yeah, I, I can foot the bill. But how about other mothers who may not be in uh, my position, right? Uh, so this is one of the impacts to children. Um, the, what, what, what are the impacts to mothers, right? Uh, Malaysian citizens were affected by this. For me, um, I'm affected in my choice of domicile. So now I've come to the point of, you know, a decade into this journey. I'm starting to ask the question, wait, you know, is, do I need to move out of Malaysia, right? Um, am I being, you know, I, I want to stay here, but not having the right of abode to the same country as my son puts us in a vulnerable position, right? So now I'm actually having to look for jobs overseas, even though I don't want to, uh, because, you know, my family's here, I have aging parents to take care of, uh, you know, my, my little boy is Malaysian. So that, that is one, right? Um, uh, we also have um, a lot of hardships for our single moms, right? A lot of women who are stuck in toxic marriages, who are forced sometimes to stay in a marriage because, well, they simply can't leave because if they leave, they can't even bring their child with them to Malaysia. Right, so what we're talking about is, you know, every day, someone's life might be in danger because of this, you know, uh, archaic and discriminatory law, right? Um, a mother's life is in danger. A child's life is in danger. So we really have to consider this. Um, yeah, another issue that I've encountered is um, Suri briefly touched on this is forced separation. So my child has not been able to see his father, who is based in uh, Beijing, for over two years now. Because if I take my kid to see his, visit his father, right, you know, I can leave and come back into the country, no problem. But my kid, he can't re-enter Malaysia, just, you know, because he's a foreigner and foreigners aren't allowed in at the moment. So these are all the considerations. Um, you know, I'm just touching lightly on them. You know, this is, we, we, the list keeps on going, right, Brendan? But um, yeah, I think, you know, this is what we can highlight. Oh, can I add something to that? I also wanted to, like, I was thinking about this, and the one thing that, that perhaps we hadn't mentioned as well was, like, you know, what happens to kids who don't actually pass um, or who don't get citizenship applications, right? What happens to them? So when they're 21, they are no longer eligible to apply for citizenship under Article 15.2. And that's, and that's hugely problematic, especially when that child might be a special needs child and therefore needs the care of their mother um, 
or just needs to stay in Malaysia because this is where their whole family is, right? We had a case, for example, one of the mothers, um, we had a pair of siblings. One is the older sibling is Indonesian. The younger sibling is Malaysian. Um, the mother married an Indonesian and left the father because he was abusive. In fact, the older sister woke up uh, one night with the father choking her. And so the mother left him and um, brought both kids back to Malaysia, right? But now, um, she she wasn't able to get Malaysia. The older sister wasn't able to get Malaysian citizenship. She is above 21. The only way she can stay in the country with her family is through a student visa. And 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 that because of covid schools are having trouble reissuing student visas right like they're having to, uh, students are having trouble um renewing their student visas so what is she to do she's been told that she can only go back to indonesia but there's no one in indonesia save for the father who tried to uh choke her right and th these are these are these puts children families into really really vulnerable positions and it's wholly unfair that simply by virtue of where they were born, these children are denied Malaysian citizenship. Yeah. Uh, just just one point, right, uh, Brendan, Iqmal, because, I mean, you guys are the future of Malaysia, right? I mean, the, the youth. Um, and I just wanted to, to make a point that, you know, I really hope that my generation will be the last generation that sees this, right? That this discrimination will end here. Um, because, you know, when I look at you guys, I, I think about my boy, you know, when he's your age, right? I mean, when he's your age, he, what, if, what if he, you know, runs afoul with the law, right? Or if is accused of something. He would not have very good access to justice. Let's just put it that way, right? Because as a foreigner, if you, you know, make a mistake in Malaysia, we can be rather unforgiving, Right. So, you know, it's it's scary for me as a mom to think that, oh, my gosh, you know, what if what if he decides to be a little experimental or, you know, you know, when you're a teenager, you know, you want you, you want to explore. Right. So, um, you know, he won't even have that that freedom um, to to make a few mistakes and to still be protected. So uh, just wanted to also put that out. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Miss Adeline and uh, Miss Suri. I think you brought up a very good point in the sense that Malaysia isn't uh, doesn't have the best track record in treating our foreigners, but I think that's a conversation for another day. Um, if there's any one last question or two questions that we can take, does anyone want to ask a question? Just put your hand up. Right. Hi. Hello. My name is Desmond, and I just want to ask perhaps one last question. Right, so we have considered the legal aspects to the current state of affairs, and we've seen how um, how it has negatively affected the uh, the mothers and the uh, children who were born overseas. So my question is, what do you think it would take to actually shift the mindset of society to stop discriminating women in such a scenario? Like, um, of course, I think a lot of us have heard uh, controversial statements being made, telling all. Malaysian mothers to come back to Malaysia instead of giving birth, uh, giving birth overseas. You know, what can we laypersons do to change such a thinking? And this is open to any of the speakers. Thank you. I'll take a step at it, Desmond. Um, so, what would be really helpful for us mothers um, 
is really to get the conversation going, right? Like um, as MLSN uh, did today, to, to just talk about it, right? So more awareness needs to be around this uh, issue um, because it doesn't really just affect the mother and the child. Um, it affects the, the family, you know, it affects uh, the extended family, a lot of you have a lot of impacted grandparents you know grandparents who work so hard to raise their daughters uh, only to see their daughters being uh, treated this way right so this needs to be the conversation that is happening in your morning markets in the playgrounds everywhere right because to think that this just affects a minority of the population uh, maybe it does now but you just never know how this might impact you in the future, right? Uh, you might have a niece who will be affected by this, your sister, you know, maybe even your daughter one day, right? So it's like Suri said, rightly said, right? The time is now. Uh, we know, uh, we've always known we've had an uphill battle, but with more, I would say, more sub vocal support would be very helpful in slowly turning you know public sentiment right the negative public sentiment um yep um, um i would like to add to that uh, i like what Adin said that um you know it's everyone everyone has to do something about it you know i often tell uh during my talks or webinars that i give you know justice is not meant to be chased only by lawyers it's meant to be stood for and uh, spoken about by every individual, you know. Gender e uh, equality is part of a human right, you know. And our constitution was only amended in 2001, which was just 10 years ago, to include gender as non-discriminatory. And that was only 10 years ago, you know. So we have come somewhere, but we still have a long way to go. And to start speaking about it more vocally, uh, that is how change happens, you know, even with strategic litigation, you know, sometimes you might not always win, but you win at bringing awareness, you win at the public starting to talk about it, uh, to do, you know, like, like simply as this, you know, doing webinars such as this, getting uh, people uh, uh, to know about the situation in our country is getting the media in, uh, involved, getting people to uh, know about the situation. I think that's the best way forward is when we start speaking and keep knocking till change comes. Maybe not in our lifetime, but to be a part of that change, even if we don't see it during our lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. If I can add to that, I definitely concur. I think talking about it is 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 so important, but not and not just at work, but like, you know, with your parents, with your friends, because at the end of the day, the fight for, or the, the, the challenge of changing people's minds and hearts, you know, happens like at, at several levels, right? I mean, you have changing the law, which might change behavior, but you might also need, you might also want to change people's hearts. And when there is really enough pressure, when there is an outcry, as we've seen, more and more because as a result of this case you know we've seen people just 
being completely dumbfounded by the fact that like they just can't believe eh, Malaysia macam gini ke? Is it still like this? I didn't realize that women ha- uh, could not confer citizenship on an equal basis. You know, a lot of people don't know. Um, and a lot of people are open to being changed, but they just need someone to kind of broach that conversation. And all of you are agents of change. All of you have that capacity to have these conversations, to make the points that you make. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if a law results in injustice, what is it, what are laws for? Laws are to govern our lives. And if, if, the, if the outcome of that is injustice, then, then that needs to change. Then the law, which might have been relevant at one point in 1957, maybe, may not be relevant now, and it needs to change. And we, you, all of us, are drivers of that change because we are, we, you know, we are at the end of the day the people who have to live under these laws and be governed by them. And for that simple reason alone, these laws should be just in their outcomes. Thank you, Miss Suri. Um, I think, Miss Bina, yeah. you have a question. Yeah, it's not a question, but I just want to say that we shouldn't wait. Okay, who bears the burden of childbirth? It's the Malaysian woman who has to put her life at risk, take a plane, putting even her unborn child's life at risk to come to the country. Is that fair? It doesn't happen to a Malaysian man. He doesn't get pregnant for him to come on a flight, put his life in danger. Why is this law still in existence? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't take another day to, uh, you know, for people to change this law or change mindsets. It should be changed right now. Because it is a law that does not validate women's right. These women who are in overseas are in toxic marriages. Should we make them suffer some another day? Where is justice? All of y'all are law students. We can't do this alone. Every one of you should be raising your voice and asking for the change from your MP, from the ministers, from the cabinet, from everyone in Malaysia needs to be advocating to make sure this change happens and not another woman, not another Malaysian woman should suffer anymore like this injustice. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Bina, for that, uh, for your uh, uh, expression as well. I think I resonate with that really well because I feel like, especially the youth, right, we've never really experienced firsthand how to, like, advocate for change. And I think 100% um, the youth should be more involved. We should contact uh, the necessary stakeholders. We should constantly talk about it. And we should always bring this this issue to light. Um, I actually also have one question that I wanted to ask because I feel like since statelessness and citizenship discrimination is so closely related because some stateless children are a product of Malaysia's unequal citizenship laws and uh, Ms. Adlin correctly brought up that healthcare, recourse to justice and other necessities is hard to be accessed by these individuals. I was wondering, I was curious to know, like, are there any forms of aid which these individuals could have access to in order to elevate their burdens? Ikmal, aid in terms of financial aid, is it? Uh, I think uh, all aspects of um, them going through this process, like the process of registration uh, of their children, and also 
uh, that aspect as well. So right. when it comes to recourse to justice and all of that. Yeah. Uh, maybe I can answer from the legal uh, perspective. Maybe Suri and Anting can answer from the grounds because I'm not sure about what happens on the grounds. But uh, working on this issue, we know the NGO DRA, D-H-R-R-A, they work specifically on statelessness and this issue where they actually help individuals with their documentation, the supporting documents to uh, apply to the relevant JPNs on how to go about it. Uh, aside from that, during the vaccination period uh, for these individuals as well, they were assisting them and all of them were vaccinated. Uh, so they were the in-between person so that they have access to vaccination. Uh, in terms of education, there are NGOs uh, who work closely sometimes because uh, UNHCR, aside from refugee, they also work with statelessness and they have partnered with certain NGOs to uh, uh, as a form of education to give these individuals education. So there are NGOs uh, working alongside with some of the government uh, departments and, uh, and uh, UNHCR or with certain lawyers who give uh, pro bono work, like for example, our firm, if there are any test cases that we want to take up or cases that we want to bring actions to court. Yeah. I think, um, I think as Larissa rightly pointed out, there are pockets, like whether it's through NGOs or you know um, the pro bono portion of a law firm, like like what Larissa, like the excellent work that Larissa is doing. Um, you know, there are pockets where this NGO might help with education, this NGO might help with um, alleviating like um, vaccinations, healthcare, um, legal rights, this, that, and the other. But by and large, what we're seeing is a systematic and um, cohesive response, right? Which is why people fall through the cracks. And that is that is the big problem that we're seeing. The, all of these problems are coming about because, because at the end of the day, CSOs, you know, civil society organizations, um, uh, like, are, are doing their best to patch these holes in a larger landscape filled with other holes. And essentially what is happening now is even though organizations are trying their best, it is not enough, which is why at the end of the day, a holistic and, and uh, strategic response needs to happen. And this is why we're doing what we're doing, right? I mean, there are, of course, like uh, temporary stopgap measures, which, which uh, get implemented. But again, um, it really, like, to what extent do those services reach everyone who's affected, right? And and that's essentially always the question, how many people know of these services, how many people have access to these services, that always ends up being like a big issue in when, you, when we talk about like stopgap measures like this. Um, and what we don't want to have happen is people fall through the cracks. Um, I think Iqmal earlier was saying, you know, like sometimes uh, like, what happens with these unlucky families. And I, I really, like, I wanna, I wanna draw attention away from luck because luck should have, not, have nothing to do with this. This is an example of a systemic failure where the government has clearly failed um, in its response to correct, to one, address this issue and then correct it. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, like Malaysian women 
our babies are are basically rendered either stateless or deprived of basic rights that are considered fundamental to each and every person. Um, and that is that is a systemic problem that needs to be addressed with a systemic um, solution, right? Stopgap measures are all well and good, but at the end of the day, we really need something holistic so that can that can address this issue. And and I think gender discrimination should be the last thing to stand in the way of that, right? We need to ensure that this is not a reason that is used to justify the continued application of laws. Uh, and policies and practices that that result in in the marginalization of our own um, citizens. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Ms. Suri and Ms. Larissa, for your insight. I think with that question, we've come to the end of our session for today. It really has been a fruitful discussion with all of you. And I think the best way for the rest of us to go forward is to always keep ourselves updated with the appeal made by the government against a high court ruling and always have a conversation regarding this issue. Thank you so much, Ms. Larissa, Suri, and Adeline for being our speakers for today. And I hope everyone in the audience has come to learn a thing or two about the issue of gender discrimination which exists in our citizenship laws, as well as a high court case which followed suit. That's all for the podcast, and thank you for tuning in. We at MLSN hope that you had a fun time listening to the talk. And don't forget to join us in the future for more interesting events. Till then.